0: Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta.
3: Yeah, hi everybody, and welcome to Talking Biotech number 34. If you're counting, I know I am. Uh, but 34 episodes, and today's is about time we got the strawberries. Now strawberries is a crop, or our crop that I work with. Um, I didn't always, and when I first took the job or interviewed at University of Florida. They asked me, well, would you be interested in working with strawberries? It's a really interesting opportunity in genomics, and uh, no one has been there yet. And I said, great, love it. No can do it. I can get all over that. I'll just need some strawberry trees. And uh, it just goes to show you how you can go, um, you can change gears in life. I had no clue. Uh, Very little information on strawberries or agriculture even uh, 14, 15 years ago. But you change gears and you learn and you grow and you take on new uh, opportunities. And so we did. And uh, I think we went from uh, maybe clueless in 2004 to a sequenced genome in 2010 and lots of other good resources in that time. So that was, but enough about me. Let's talk about Jim Hancock. And Jim Hancock comes to us from Michigan State University. He's uh, one of the... uh, personalities in uh, strawberries and in plant genomics. He's a plant breeder who works strawberry, blueberry, and other crops, who just has been one of my favorite people to get to know uh, in uh, biology, in, in our business. Uh, just a pleasure and an endless resource. And he'll talk to us today about the domestication, the history, and some of the current breeding challenges with strawberry. And another Michigan State Connection in Part 2. Michigan State Connection is Michelle payne Canoper. Michelle will talk to us in a new part I hope to really build called um, My Favorite Things. So a few of my favorite things. And I really wanted to talk to leaders in science and science communication about where do they get their information from. And Michelle is a professional speaker who regularly Uh, not only informs but entertains audiences with her uh, excellent presentations in agriculture and uh, the science that's behind agriculture and uh, just such a pleasure to talk to her today and you'll get to hear that as well. So without uh, wasting a whole lot of time we'll go right to Dr. Hancock and the amazing story of strawberries which one of our more recent crops in terms of its uh, evolution and also one of the most genetically Complex, it genomically simple, and he'll talk about that. On to this week's interviews. Today on Talking Biotech, we go to East Lansing, Michigan, home of Michigan State University and longtime home of our guest today, uh, Professor Jim Hancock. Welcome to the podcast, Jim.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
3: Yeah, it's um I I Jim Hancock um has very rich history in strawberry breeding and in blueberry breeding at Michigan State University and um, has contributed very much to the activities in the horticultural sciences department, but also to the wider discipline. And I remember when I was just getting my feet wet in strawberries back in, not my feet wet, like in strawberries, but learning the ropes in strawberries, that I read a lot of your work and found it very helpful and approachable and was always so nervous about meeting you because I thought, you know, here's this... Uh, you know this person who must be a crusty old guy who is not going to want to be, who isn't going to be approachable and and it turns out you were uh, you were one of my favorite people in the discipline after a while and uh, so glad to uh, have you on today.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
3: So let's start with the history of strawberry. Uh, strawberries have a really interesting reticulate history. And so, where do we what do we know, Jim, in terms of where we start from evolutionary origins? And uh, where this thing really came from?
1: Okay, well, you know the the strawberry, the dessert strawberry that we mostly eat, um, it's based on two species, Fragaria virginiana and Fragaria chiloensis. Um, they're wild all through North America. At least Fragaria virginiana is found all through North America and Canada. Um, Fragaria chiloensis is found sort of on the the coast, the Pacific coast, from Alaska to the center of uh, California, and also Chile. Uh, That's an interesting story in itself we we might want to get into. Um, So those are the the two progenitors of of the strawberry.
3: So it's actually actually the one that we eat comes from two individuals that uh, grow wild in, in different places, though. And tell, right. Can you tell us about the Chilean strawberry? What do we know about its origins and maybe its domestication?
1: Sure. Well, it, the actual Fragaria chiloensis in Chile was domesticated by the local Indians there, the Mapuches, probably one to 2,000 years ago. So long before Europeans got there, they actually were cultivating a strawberry. Um, they actually were focused on white strawberries, um, but they also bred red ones as well. The story goes that uh, when the, the uh, Spanish started to try to colonize, that they would plant <laughs> strawberries in open patches in the forest, and the, the, the Spaniards would take their helmets off, and then they could attack them when they wanted to eat the fruit. But it so the Frigaria chiloensis has a long history of domestication. Frigaria virginiana never really was domesticated by itself.
3: And that's the one that we find growing in forests throughout North America.
1: That's right, all through North America.
3: So here you have stories of two different uh, parents of the modern dessert strawberry. You've got some that are coming from South America, which have been at least somewhat improved uh, from uh, indigenous peoples, and another set that are up here in North America. And so how did these two get together to create what we know as strawberry?
1: It's, I mean, it's It's a totally amazing story. Um, the Frigaria Virginiana found its way to Europe in the 1700s, probably collected by explorers on the eastern seaboard. Um, and so it was there in botanical gardens, more or less, as a novelty. And there was a French spy sent to Tilly to look at, at Spanish fortifications there And he stumbled on the strawberries that that the Mapuches had domesticated, thought they were unusually large compared to what was in Europe at the time, and took them back to France. Uh, They wound up in a French botanical garden. Um, It turned out that they didn't produce fruit at all because he had collected females, and the two sexes are separate in Chile. So he didn't have anything to pollinate it. It couldn't make a fruit. And it Happened to finally produce fruit when it was accidentally planted next to a Fragaria virginiana from the eastern seaboard of North America, and they accidentally hybridized, and that's the beginning of our dessert strawberry. <laughs> so it's amazing.
3: It is such a cool story. So, uh, so colonists in the 1500s and spies from or a spy from 17 something uh, moving plants around. Uh, doing what nature didn't do and putting both of these together in they end up together in a French botanical garden and the other really interesting layer of the story is the person who made the discovery and what do we know about the person who really kind of facilitated that uh, discovery and maybe even that pairing of
1: virginiana
3: and chiloensis
1: well there was a there was a French Botanist, you know, and I've never been sure how to say his name. I've never heard anything. It's it's Duchesne or Duquesne. Um Maybe your French is better than mine. Um, well, I always but, I
3: always said I always said Duchesne, uh, uh, Duchesne, but
1: <laughs> okay, well maybe that's <laughs> it then. <laughs> but he he was the one who actually figured out there were separate sexes, um, and and he, and he called the hybrid the pineapple strawberry because of a unique aroma that it, that it had. But he was, a, he was a pretty famous botanist that, that figured out that there had to have been a hybridization.
3: And uh, hence the name Fragaria ananasa, which ananas is the uh, Spanish for, for or ananasas for uh, pineapple.
1: I'd be hard-pressed to pick up a whole lot of, of smell of pineapple in today's strawberry, but it must have been stronger in those earlier ones. Well,
3: there's a few diploids that have that ester, and well, we do. can get to that maybe in a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's 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 your expertise. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that I, I was under the impression that he was visiting the botanical gardens. Uh, started out going to the botanical gardens as a child, and into his teens. Ah,
1: yes, yes, yes. He had a long history there. Long history.
3: But his uh, his expertise as a uh, as a. Botanist was actually gained at the knee of a uh, of a botanist at the French Botanical Gardens, where he was uh, able in Versailles, where he was uh, l- able to learn about the different plants and uh, actually took a liking to the strawberries in his teens. At least from the work from um, George Darrow, uh, right, right, gave us some good hints on that. And there's uh, since the time of uh, of that that this hybridization occurred in the 17 mid 1700s. What has happened in terms of strawberry improvement and strawberry breeding?
1: Well, you know, the, the nothing was done formally for probably a century. Um, people kept finding these these interesting hybrids, picking them out and, and cultivating them. Um, but interestingly enough, the first breeder of strawberries was an Englishman, Thomas Knight. And about in the 1850s and turns out he was actually the first formal breeder of any crop. Um, so uh, the strawberry is the first crop that that was actually formally bred where somebody was making knowledgeable controlled crosses and picking out hybrids. So about the middle of the 18th century is when when he did that work. He developed the first named varieties if you will.
3: That's really interesting, because a lot of other interesting uh science came out of uh, strawberries, as I understand from Darrow's work that uh even uh Duchesne was doing crosses and uh looking and was able to generate what he called a genealogy where he was able to arrange the the specimens in the garden based on uh their complexity based on fruit characteristics, and actually made a list that stands up to what we know today about Ploidy, um that that he was able to estimate, I mean, he didn't know it, um, that he was estimating chromosome numbers, but it seemed to fit very well uh, in, in his observations.
1: Right, right. You know, the, the strawberry has eight sets of chromosomes. It's called an octoploid, which makes it pretty unusual among, among all the crop species. Uh, and, and there's been an, an interesting evolutionary history that's been worked out about what its, its progenitors must be. Um, it turns out that there are actually four ploidy levels or four chromosome numbers in strawberries, diploids which have two, tetraploids which have four, hexaploids which have six, and then the octoploids that, that we consume the most have eight. And there's been a lot of recent evolutionary work trying to figure out which of those diploids were actually the ancestors of our uh, cultivated octoploid. That's an interesting story in itself as well because it turns out that one of those progenitors is Frigaria vesca, which is found all across Europe and Asia and North America. But the other progenitor is most likely a thing called Frigaria anume, which is only found in Japan. So some, the, the original progenitor of our strawberry must have arisen somewhere in Asia. Unfortunately there there aren't any octoploids now in Asia except for one specimen or two of a thing called uh Fragaria and uh iteropensis that, that people have studied. So we've got the octoploids that are growing all over North America and found their way to Chile, but we have no progenitor in Asia where it must have happened.
3: Yeah so maybe the question is if is if the polyploidization events actually occurred in the new world.
1: Maybe, but one of those species is, of course, now extinct in the new world if it was there.
3: Ah, that's right. (laughs) Well, it is an interesting question because, and maybe just to kind of clarify for those who are listening, that when we're talking about ploidy, we're talking about chromosome complements Uh, And when we're talking about, so humans uh, are diploid. We have a set of chromosomes from mom, a set of chromosomes from dad. And as we've uh, discussed on this podcast, things like bananas that are seedless are triploid. They have two from one parent, one from another. We also know that plants can have these events where you do transmit an abnormal number of chromosomes to your offspring. And if uh, one that makes uh, too many and another one that makes too many get together, that's one mechanism, that we can develop these polyploids. And one of the interesting things about polyploids in plants, say that 10 times fast, <laughs> is that um, they uh, they tend to develop larger organs and larger fruit. So this is uh, why maybe uh, polyploidization events have been favored, at least in uh, in making these plants more attractive to people that may be eating them.
1: So. Right. Evolutionarily, you know, there's, there's a lot of ideas about why polyploids formed in the first place, um, but you know it's what it's mostly been discovered is you can go up in chromosome number, but you can't come back down. so if you have enough random events, you're eventually going to to go up in ploidy number over time.
3: yeah, that's right, and it seems like you actually lose some material as you increase your ploidy, so as you gain more and more chromosomes there's pieces of material or whole segments that seem to disappear or maybe are changed in other ways that in other words the octoploid strawberry we know its uh, genome size is not equal to four times a diploid
1: <laughs> exactly exactly i mean you, you have essentially many copies of of every gene and and so you can you can lose a gene or two in <laughs> evolutionary time and uh, not really uh, hurt the function of the plant.
3: So I'll ask you some questions from your experience as a breeder and I think this is really interesting to for a listener who w- we hear all this discussion about genetics and monocultures and things like that. Strawberry if we're if, if the story is correct really goes back to one plant from a from a uh, French botanical garden. Where, where, how much variation is there now, and where did that come from? And, and is strawberry really a narrow genetic base?
1: Well, it is a very narrow genetic base. It obviously no longer traces back to a single individual. And people figured out pretty quickly that they were hybrids once they started to formally breed. So they did begin to bring in a number of, of Virginia lines from the U.S. and the breeding programs in Britain and France. Um, they started to bring in the, some Chiloensis. But still, if you, if you really examine the number of parents that are in our, our, the background of our commercial strawberries, as far as wild clones are concerned, it's really only a handful. It may be 25 or 30 is all. Um, so it's very narrow, um, much narrow if you consider the vast uh, region that the two uh, progenitor species are. So there's lots of genetics that we haven't haven't touched on or accessed yet.
3: And does that really make you excited about um, as as a breeder thinking about how you know now we have some genomics tools at our disposal, things like that? I, I know for me as a uh, as a, I don't want to say a closet breeder, but a, uh, a breeding admirer, <laughs> um, as somebody who really admires plant breeders and what they do and gets excited about new varieties. I think I would love to go back to all the diploids and make synthetic octoploids, make new weird combinations just to see what we could get in terms of disease resistance traits and maybe some better flavors. And does that seem realistic
1: at all? Yeah, sure. It's realistic. And, and in fact, uh, uh, I've lost his name, but a, a scientist at Guelph actually did a number of those. But, you know, it, it, it almost makes more sense to work at the octoploid level because they're going to be directly compatible with what we're breeding with. And I've actually been involved in a project where what, w- what we call it is reconstructing the strawberry. And what we've done is we and uh, other colleagues, Chad Finn, uh, Adam Dale... Jim Luby, uh, we've gone out into the the natural populations all over North America and in Chile, identified what looked to be the most useful horticulturally uh, valuable clones in the wild, and then we set about rehybridizing both Virginiana and Chiloensis. So we've reconstructed. And the most, the best of all of the selections that we've made actually has. Two subspecies of Virginiana and two subspecies of Chiloensis in its background. And it almost has commercial-sized fruit. It's, it's truly remarkable. And uh, the clones, the original parents, came from Ontario, Wyoming, Chile, and California. So we think we have a, a really uh, useful tool for people to access more variability in the future.
3: Right, so just to explain for the listener, that kind of background, that now that you've made this really strong mix of genes from different, different places, different variants, different alleles that may bring different uh, disease resistance to the table or different flavors or plant qualities, now this resource exists where you could breed this against maybe uh, varieties that do well commercially and incorporate some of these traits that maybe breeders
1: have lost. Exactly. Exactly, and it's it's right there, and and it, you know the nice thing about it is this is a population of about 120 different individuals, so each of them has some subset of of those genes, and we can make this population available to any breeder um, who is interested in accessing new genetic variability, and they can screen the population for whatever it is they're interested in, and then incorporates. Their specific needs into their breeding program.
3: Now, what are what are some of the traits that modern breeders are looking for? What what's important?
1: Well, obviously, flavor remains there, um, and you know, we during the early course of breeding, we did lose an awful lot of of the flavor and the aromas that you were talking about earlier. That that we we certainly want to go back and access, um, but there's a lot of disease resistances that. Would be particularly valuable. Um, one of the big uh, problems right now is we relied uh, in strawberry uh, production on methyl bromide fumigation of the soil to kill soil pathogens. We no longer have that tool, um, and so we need to access new genetic variability um, to, to find those resistances. So, those are a couple of the ideas.
3: What are some of the challenges that our farmers face to create a profitable crop of strawberry?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, part of it's luck, obviously. I mean, when, when you want to harvest fruit to sell it, you need some reasonable atmospheric conditions. If it rains the whole time during the harvest, you're, you're, you're sunk. Um, there's that kind of thing. But there's lots of lingering problems in, in the Midwestern part of the United States. Cold hardiness you know winter hardiness whether they can survive the winter is is a is a major problem uh spring frost which which uh eliminate or annihilate the the flower buds is is a major problem um and again i I go back to the soil pathogens as being a a major major problem uh, for most of our growers along with a lot of fruit rots um so there's there's a there's a there's a good bit of problems that that face the grower.
3: It's one of the things we've noticed down here in Florida since the loss of methyl bromide, the soil fumigant, we've seen an emergence of new diseases and nematode pressures, but uh, new diseases that have never shown up before in
1: strawberry. Exactly, exactly. And that, again, that's why I think, you know, a big future, um, as far as the strawberry industry is concerned, is to access genetics from these wild populations to to go after some of these emerging problems because breeders just haven't been selecting for uh, those resistances in the past and we may have actually lost any resistance genes we might have had because we've never been selecting for it.
3: And I think that's really an important point. I think that strawberry could be a kind of a trendsetter in a lot of ways because there's so much untapped biological diversity in wild populations that do just well with it, perfectly fine growing in sand on the side of a cliff in, uh, in uh, Oregon that they don't care about fertilizer, they make fruits, they're happy as can be. And if we could get these genetics incorporated into commercial varieties, it may be of great benefit. I, and also that, you know, we neglected to mention, strawberry is a little bit of a pioneer for a much larger family of important hort crops. So what, what else is related to sh- strawberry?
1: Well, it's rosaceous, um, which means we're talking about uh, raspberries, we're talking about roses, and we're talking about a number of the tree fruits cherries, peach um, so there a lot of the information that we can generate in strawberries can be used in in other crops as well
3: that's pretty exciting because strawberries the i think you know if, unless you look at some of the obscure ones. It's kind of the only one you can grow a bunch of them in a greenhouse and get them from uh, seed to flower in a season and uh, in a couple of months sometimes if you force them. And uh, that gives us a really important tool that maybe we could use strawberry and always been my argument that we could use strawberry as a gene discovery tool to be able to inform breeding activities in the larger tree crops and, and things like roses and brambles and um, what kind of, uh, what kind of uh, efforts are in that area? Are there any uh, translational efforts that you're aware of, or is there any biotechnology happening in strawberry?
1: Yeah, well, it, um, you know, there's a couple things going on. You, you know, you, you, uh, you interviewed Amy Iazzoni recently. I, I don't think you talked about the Rosebreed project that she's spearheaded, but there's a federally funded huge project, 10 million, 15 million, that's bringing together breeders and and biotechnologists in all of these different rosaceous crops together. And a big goal of this is, is gene discovery in the individual crops and trying to translate that information to the other ones. So there's a big, big effort to do just what you're talking about. And part of the whole goal of this is once you've identified these critical genes... Um, to find uh, DNA diagnostic markers uh, that are nearby them in the chromosome, so that in breeding you can actually specifically breed for those traits without having to, to actually look at the plant or taste the plant. You can actually anticipate what it will have. So that's that's the big uh, the big ongoing effort. Um, but there are also people now that are sequencing the whole strawberry genome, the octoploid genome, and ultimately we're going to be able to identify specific genes and target those specific genes in our breeding programs.
3: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up rosebreed. I know we had Amy on a few weeks ago, and we really focused on cherries and sweet cherries, tart cherries, and didn't get much into the, or didn't touch on at all on the rosebreed issue. I'm hoping that maybe just devote an entire session to that later on, but at least in the... uh, in the short term, it's a really nice opportunity to, as you mentioned, develop um, diagnostic tools that can relate across species and or at least within populations of one species and uh, one pedigree and then maybe translate across uh, across species. And those would be tremendously powerful tools that could help inform uh, these efforts going
1: forward. Right. And, and, you know, some of the crops are way ahead of the other crops. Uh, peach and, and and apple, particularly apple, um, had far in advance of the other crops in, in the genomic tools that have been developed. And it's been really wonderful to work with those folks on some of our other crops like strawberries and, and rose that are lagging behind because we essentially get a jump start by, by sharing information.
3: Um so what what's the future of strawberry and strawberry breeding? What what are we going to see happening in the next few years? And what really is the new focus? Or what do you, in your opinion? What do you see happening?
1: Well, you know, one thing that's happened in strawberries, interestingly enough, is is the industry keeps growing and growing and growing and growing, and and it's it's a it's a percent or two every couple of years. So worldwide, people love. Their strawberries in it and it keeps tremendously growing. I th- think that, that flavor and health are going to become a, a bigger impact in the future. Um, a lot of the things like yield and, and, and resistances to uh, fruit rots, we've got a lot of a good handle on that, but we haven't really focused on flavor. So I think flavor and the nutrition are going to be big, big points. I think that this this whole um idea of developing strawberries that are resistant to soil pathogens is going to be huge um It's been essentially ignored uh in the past because it could rely on you know the ozone <laughs> depleting methyl bromide but now that we've we've lost that, we're going to have to focus it so I think that's going to be a big big area in in the future
3: yeah, we didn't talk about. Uh, transgenic effort you know or or genetic engineering efforts but you know my lab we've we've come up with um strawberries expressing cystatins which showed some positive effects and uh resistance to nematodes never even published that work uh the postdoc she decided she wasn't coming to work one year (laughs) (laughs) and i can't find that (laughs) yeah and uh, I can't find yep. the uh, any of the data, but we, we did have some nice transgenics there that did some good work. And uh, also, the uh, we've made the uh, NPR1 overexpressors, which don't get disease, but they also don't make very many flowers or runners. So you solve one problem, you create another. And, um, you know, hopefully in the future, we'd be able to maybe tweak that a touch. But uh, those kinds of solutions may be in the pipeline as well, depending upon how, uh, you know, social change and acceptability towards those solutions.
1: You know, that, yeah, that's the, you know, that's the big issue with strawberry. There's two issues um, as far as, you know, the GE approaches. Um, One is there's still this worry that uh, the consumers are going to be nervous about eating a strawberry where... It was genetically modified. So the industry is still queasy about that. Um, We know that whatever would be released would be totally safe, but people are are worried about the process and worried about the uh, unexpected, if you will. But the other particular problem with strawberries is we have these wild uh, populations all over the place. And it would be only a matter of time till there would be a genetic uh, hybrid formed between a a GE strawberry, and a wild one. So we have to be particularly careful that whatever, however we engineer the strawberry, it's not going to have any impact on the natural environment. There are a series of straightforward experiments that can be done to document whether they're safe or not. But it's costly, and, and strawberries are a, a minor enough crop that no one has wanted to face that regulatory hurdle.
3: Yeah, I know nobody has been banging down my door saying we, you know, want those solutions. We they all say, oh, that would be great because if we could grow plants without using any fungicides, that would be super. But you know, the the threat of having uh, activists say, don't buy strawberries from you know so and so, or don't buy them from this company, or you know, they're getting the consumer backlash, and then also the caveats you mentioned that you know there's uh, wild strawberries pretty much all over North America except for Florida. Uh, at least that we've ever found. And, um, and uh, you do have those concerns about containment, and it's a bigger issue with strawberries than probably any other crop that I can think of.
1: Yeah, I think uh, virtually all the the uh, genetically modified crops that we grow in, in the U.S. don't have wild genitors here. So they, that that whole, that whole possibility of hybridizing with the wild just doesn't exist you know it's a it's a regulatory issue i mean it it it's it's a cost issue um it's it's not an overall uh safety issue as far as the technology is concerned
3: and how much of the public consternation came from the uh stories of fish genes in strawberries
1: oh yeah it 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 didn't help <laughs> but you know i mean i'm not i wouldn't be worried about eating a fish. Dean and strawberry, if it had gone through our U.S. regulatory process, it's 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 a good one.
3: Well, and if you have uh, if you sat down with a fish genome and a strawberry genome, you would find a relatively strong um, set of alignments that were pretty convincing I mean the genes aren't that different uh, for uh, many of the central functions of a eukaryotic cell of a nucleated cell so uh, you know both of us share a common ancestor somewhere and there's plenty of reminders of that throughout the genome as I really enjoyed the conversation it really was nice to talk to an expert about this crop that I really care about that contributes a lot to my state's uh, economy Uh, Thank you so much for joining me, Jim. Uh, Professor Jim Hancock from Michigan State University, Department of Horticulture, thank you for joining me on Talking
1: Biotech. I enjoyed it very much, and as you know, I have the highest respect for you and was pleased to have this opportunity.
3: Thank you so much, Jim. We'll see you pretty soon. Okay, great. Hello, everybody. Now, you might have noticed that the Talking Biotech podcast frequently incorporates guest hosts. The goal here is to expose those interested in science communication to a wider audience and maybe provide a friendly entrance to how to actually engage the public in a meaningful way. Now, it's always hard to take that first step, but I'm glad to offer this platform for you to tell your story and work with me in discussing new technologies with people that created them or understand them well. So if you're interested in joining me as a co-host, send a note to TalkingBiotechPodcast at gmail.com and let me know. We'll devise questions together. We'll find fun ways to make you part of the discussion. Heck, you do the whole damn thing. I'll just listen. Remember, science flows best when innovation moves to application, and, and that takes communication. If this vehicle can bring more voices to the discussion, it only amplifies my interest in sharing the beautiful stories of science and technology that can help people and help the planet. Okay, so on this uh, section of Talking Biotech, we're going to try something new. A lot of people ask me, where do I find very helpful news or articles on social media? And instead of sharing what uh, I find very helpful, I'd like to talk about what others who are currently very active in agriculture and agricultural communications, what they find very helpful. And today I'm really pleased to have with us Michelle Payne-Noper, who wrote the book No More Food Fights. She's a professional speaker and author who is constantly busy um, on the road talking about um, why agriculture needs to have a a better voice in the discussion. And uh, thank you very much for joining us, Michelle.
2: Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you having me.
3: So uh, what are uh, what else are you up to these days in terms of uh, future work?
2: Well, I am very excited because I actually am getting ready to turn in my manuscript for a book called Food Truths from Farm to Table, 25 Surprising Ways to Shop and Eat Without Guilt. Um, and the book addresses myths around the grocery store with truths from uh, both the farm plate and science through stories. So I will be glad when that's turned in. And hopefully if everything goes well with the publisher, you will see it on bookshelves at Thanksgiving time.
3: And what kind of other work do you do from day to day? I know that I met you in Saskatoon uh, talking to kind of an agriculture technology group. And what other types of audiences do you speak to and what is your usual role?
2: Well, I really try to work to translate the science and practices of farming today um, to people both within agriculture and outside of agriculture. So groups that I work with include agricultural organizations from farm bureaus to universities to agribusinesses to dietetic groups to um, different food groups. So I do actually work full-time as a speaker. I get paid to talk, believe it or not, and um, really feel honored to be able to do that because I am a farm girl through and through. One of my degrees is in science. I worked in a reproductive physiology laboratory during um, both of my undergrad degrees and believe fully in science. But unfortunately, I think in today's society, we have a, a world that doesn't understand science and so that we need to do a better job of communicating about that, particularly in agriculture. So I really try to to train people to do that as well as motivate them.
3: And you're also an actual, you're the real deal. I mean, you're the person who actually does have a lot of experience on the farm too, right?
2: Well, I fed my baby calf this morning. I'm careful not to call myself a farmer out of respect for people who farm full-time. But, yes, I still have a dairy cattle out in my front yard, most of which are descendants from a cow that I bought for $7,000 when I was 12 years old. So agriculture is near and dear to my heart. I love to eat chocolate, wine, Cheetos, you name it. I actually do try to be healthy. But um, I see that there's some real opportunities for us to connect across the food plate and happen to believe that the stories of agriculture and of farmers and ranchers and agriculture folks are really critical in doing that and likewise that we need to be able to reach across from the agriculture side and understand what chefs and dietitians and moms and grocery store buyers are are asking and why they're asking rather than taking it so personally.
3: Wow and I, I love this mission because that it sounds so much with like what I want to learn to do better um, being able to you know I can talk to science nerds all day and that's fine but it's so cool to be able to talk to dietitians and to um, public audiences and have to reformulate your message and rethink, well, what's important to them and what do they need to walk out of here with? And it's like a really interesting thing because you, you, you talk to an audience like that, you don't really get a second shot that day if you don't hit the nail on the head. So it's lots of thinking ahead. But um, what are what are some of your biggest challenges in different audiences?
2: Uh, Probably my biggest challenge is biting my tongue. (laughs) 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 Um, For example, I've mentioned that I'm a dairy girl, and and I have registered Holsteins, and it saddens me a great deal when I hear how people talk about dairy farmers abusing the animals, and I really especially in writing the second book because it is strictly a consumer facing book when I stepped back and wrote the 25 food truths to help people shop and eat without guilt I really had to try to take off my farmer hat and I had to think about all of the questions that I've been asked you know why do people think that hormones are bad well because they probably don't understand the science behind them why do people think that antibiotics are only negative and don't have positives again because they don't understand the science behind it so um, it it One of the greatest challenges is biting my tongue and not taking it personally, and I think that all of us, whether you're a scientist or whether you're a farmer, have a really hard time separating ourselves from our work because it is so personal, right? I mean, you take your work very personally, Kevin. Oh, sure. Um, sure. So biting the tongue and then also trying to be armed with the adequate amount of facts so that I can represent the agriculture business well. Um, because of the fact that I don't specialize in just one area, I work across the entire agri-food business, and I do try to work with dietitians. What I have found is that really working with my community as a resource um, makes me, A, a whole lot smarter and, be a whole lot more effective. So I certainly will share my own farm story, which includes some um, rather... Terrible things have happened as well as wonderful positive stories that we all have from the farm. And then I also share other stories because I think that is a very effective way to showcase people. This is where your beef comes from. This is what a beef producer looks like. This is why they do what they do. And this is what somebody who's using biotechnology looks like. This is what transgenics looks like on a farm. And this is, this is important to farmers and here's why. Um, So it's really about the opportunity to convey that story. Um, And then as you've experienced yourself, understanding that not everybody's going to like the story and be okay with that.
3: <laughs> well, that, that's a good point, and and but at the same time, one of the other things I've learned in terms of tongue biting, which I've had to do a fair amount of, is that I do a lot less of it if I do more ear opening, and that if I start out any conversation by by saying, you know, well, why why are you concerned, and what can I what can I, what specifically bothers you. And really starting to understand their concerns rather than getting upset or dismissing them or wanting to say something snarky out of hand, I uh, listen to what they say very carefully and intently. Then I get snarky. No, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, but I, I think it's the idea is just that uh, actually I, I I try not to be. I I love that I I'm good at that, but I've had to really dial that down. I like to be able to just um, understand what bothers somebody because before I can try to communicate with them I need to understand what kind of critter they are and where they're getting their information and how they weight different brands of information and then now they've just told me all the keys to the castle because now I can come back and say okay well let me tell you what I know from this this and this
2: Yeah, it's amazing how if you can connect with somebody on a personal level, how you can relate to them more effectively. I always call this hot buttons. It's about what really excites people. And, you know, a silly example that I use with a lot of my audiences is that I happen to be a a huge Michigan State fan. I happen to believe that we're the best land grant out there, have the best basketball program in the country, and that Tom Isabel pretty much... Um, walks on water (laughs) and not a lot of people necessarily agree with that but that's a way of connecting with people's hot buttons on a personal level you know on a sports level on a university level Um, and then I can in turn be more human to them whereas if I just approach them as an agriculturalist and said you need to understand XYZ people aren't interested in that. So one of the things that is really critical when I work with scientists specifically is that science isn't sexy, science doesn't sell. And I mean, no disrespect to anybody out there who works in the science world. But the reality is is that as a scientist, you have to connect with people on a personal level before they are interested in you, quote, educating them. Because in today's social world, uh, people aren't interested in education. They're on information overload. They're interested more in having conversations and full transparency and all that sort of good stuff.
3: No, you nailed it. And, and, And I learned that the hard way. I've been trying to talk to people about science for 15 years. And really only in the last three or four did I start to figure out what you just told me. That it's not about saturating people with all the information I can pump out of my 30-year you know, background in, in science. It's really about um, how do I understand what their concerns are, what their interests are, and uh, what they want to know. And then how do I shape a story to help lead them to that reality. As well as be transparent about why I feel the way I do and where they can get more information both for and against my opinion. Yeah. And and if you put all that on the table and you make yourself available, it does help guide somebody and I think that it's that kind of honesty which has really um allowed allowed me to change a, a lot of hearts and minds and maybe put a big target on my back at the same time. <laughs>
2: perhaps, but when you make those human connections, people don't forget you, because uh, you know, there there is an old quote out there that I think a lot of folks recognize from um, Maya Angelou, people will forget what you say, people will forget what you do, but they will never forget the way you make them feel, and when you can connect with somebody through their hot buttons and have a true conversation, they feel very different than if you're trying to stuff information down their throat, and sometimes it it can be very simple. To give you a quick example, in my, my research for my new book, I sat down with several groups of other mothers and and so forth and they by the end of the conversation said michelle we just want to know what you buy at the grocery store and that was a huge win for me because the conversation started off with why do why do chicken farmers cram chickens in cages and when I shared with them that A, broilers are actually raised in cages, and B, by the way, um, did you know that chickens are not only scavengers, um, they're also omnivores, and if given the opportunity, they will peck and eat each other? Um, you know, people start opening their minds when you present it to them in a way that is digestible to them. And, and I very much believe that the only way to be able to relate science to most people, not everyone, But particularly to the mom crowd, the only way to relate science is to make it matter to them on a personal level. So...
3: No, that's excellent advice, and it it's something you do really well. I really appreciated your talk when I saw it, and it was one of those things where I was going after you, and I thought, okay, well, now what do I do? You know, <laughs> oh,
2: I mean, yeah. she just
3: said everything I'd like to say only 10 times better.
2: <laughs> I don't know about that. You know, I will say, Kevin, I think one of the most powerful things that, that you would agree with is that within our agricultural community, um, and particularly because of social media, that that we have a lot of connections that maybe we didn't used to have and that we have the opportunity to learn from each other and to have people to turn to. Um, It's impossible for me to understand all the intricacies of GMO and everything that's happening in gene editing, but I know people like you that I can turn to in a heartbeat if I need to have that answered or to research it further. And I think that makes all of us stronger is to realize we don't have to have all the answers, but we know people who do.
3: That's right. Just like any good network, you have your uh your your chain of experts who can be interdependent. And I think we are really and it took us a long time to develop that and understand that as a discipline. And I think now we're really starting to gel a little bit across the board and um certainly as these issues have become more of interest to uh, especially agricultural groups and then also to scientists. The scientists want to learn more about communicating in agriculture space uh, and it's just communicating science that a lot of the connections are becoming more frequent. Um, I see different people more and more on a, on Uh, a more cyclical basis, which I think is really good. Yes, I would
2: absolutely agree. And you know, one of the things that I'd point out to your listeners, that if you're interested in connecting with other folks in um, agriculture, to check out some different things like AgChat on Twitter, which is hashtag A-G-C-H-A-T, or hashtag FoodChat, we could always use more scientific perspective, and that's a conversation that happens every week from 8 to 10 Eastern Time, Um, Ag Chat happens three weeks the month and then Food Chat happens once and the Ag Chat Foundation manages that but communities like that really foster the networking that you're talking about and um, I think also helps us all be a little bit stronger in knowing the facts Um, because, for example, I don't know anything about strawberry breeding and I've had a million friends tell me that watermelons are biotech and GMO, seedless watermelons to be clear and because of you, I know that they're not and so it's even those little types of facts that I, I think help us all communicate more effectively.
3: So step back if you don't mind. The um, uh, you just what were the two hashtags that you just mentioned?
2: Hashtag agchat a g c h a t and hashtag foodchat f o o d c h t. And those both eight, of those are managed by the AgChat Foundation.
3: And those were eight p.m. Eastern time or eight a.m.
2: Uh, eight p.m. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> Farmers are out taking care of their land and animals at 8 a.m. I know. Um, it's 8 p.m. <laughs> but, but
3: there's going to be somebody in Hawaii who writes me a flaming email and calls me a Monsanto time, a Monsanto time shill, um, burying the actual uh, information. You know, it, it'll happen.
2: Yeah, well, I've been called a lot worse than a show myself, so I get it. Trust me.
3: <laughs> so th- th- that is a really good segue into what I had planned for today, and that what I wanted to do was bring in... Um, over the next several weeks or however long this lasts, Um, people who I really like their ideas and really appreciate their offerings in terms of media and and, uh, social media, and ask them where they get theirs. And what I would love to know from you is, what are maybe the top places where you go to uh, broaden what you do, or maybe reinforce what you know, or maybe learn a little bit more about agriculture, science, and the ways to communicate it?
2: Sure. Well, I'm probably a little bit odd because I have my finger in so many different parts of agriculture. So um, I look very big picture, sometimes to the point where I'm not sure that it makes sense to anywhere, anyone else in the world. Um, one of my favorite sources and probably my top source for information in my first book and my second book is Food Insight, which is the International Food Information Council. Um, you can find them at Food Insight on various social handles or ific.org or I think food site. It, foodinsight.com. I'm not sure about that one. A great unbiased resource and a wide variety of subjects. Um, For example, I was just writing about um, some of the things that happen around who and the claims around cancer and meat and the fact that um, cancer and the sun excuse me, meat and the sun have about the same correlation as causing cancer. Um, They had some really great information on that. Likewise, they had Um, information on on sugars when I was writing about the facade of how bad sugars are for you and those sorts of things. So they're my top resource that I go to on a a bevy of food issues. Um, They have a section for journalists as well as scientists and consumers, I believe, um, but really a great resource. Another one would be genetic literacy, uh, heavy science for those of you that are Out there that love biotech and everything genetics. Um, I really like the Genetic Literacy Project. Uh, They have a great deal of explanation about what's happening in genetics today, not only in agriculture but elsewhere. And one of the things that I like to do is to try to get people who are buying food to think about the correlation between animal and plant genetics and human genetics. And what's happening as far as some of the benefits that have happened in medicine and benefits that have happened in reproduction, as an example, happen in, in animals first. And that there are some very clear correlations there. Okay. So those are a couple of big picture ones.
3: Well, both of those are, are two really good ones. Um, and I'll make sure I put all of the links on the website And I should go back and uh, also state, someone said that I don't say who I'm talking to enough, so people will, I don't know, wake up from a nap or a coma or something and be curious who I'm talking to. Um, uh, Michelle Payne-Noper, who uh, is uh, a public speaker, agriculture communicator, um, and other things, um, she's sharing with us her favorite blogs and websites for good information in agriculture and science. So what else do you have, Michelle?
2: Well, to whoever woke up from a a coma, welcome back. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> I, I would i would really i would really well imagine waking up to my nasally drone so, so, well, you know.
2: i don't want to insult you but i was going to point out the fact that if somebody's waking up from a coma i don't think they'd be listening to a podcast of us but
3: uh, yeah but you know okay so what else do you like on uh, in uh, especially in social media space that uh, maybe you get some good information
2: Sure. Um, Well, I play a great deal in Twitter, and so um, my world in Twitter is probably ruled by hashtags and learning different hashtags, too monitor and check out um, and because of the fact that I work with dietitians I look at what some of them are doing and so forth so it's just a matter of trying to find what what works for you and I would say the same is true in Instagram I'm very visual so I love Instagram and I would challenge any scientist out there um, matter of fact you can tell me if I'm wrong feel free to email me at, mpk at cause I would challenge any scientist to share visuals from your lab and talk about what you're doing. I've not seen it done in agriculture sciences. I've seen some from the barn in the field as far as scientific research, but I think it would be fascinating uh, for scientists to be able to share visuals on what they're doing. Um, that doesn't actually require you to talk unless you do video. You can just share a photo. And one of the critical things that you'll learn is that hashtags are really important. Um, A couple of other sources that I like to go to outside of the actual social channels. Um, I enjoy The Farmer's Life. He's become a personal friend, Brian Scott. He's actually here in Indiana, though I'm not sure we've ever seen each other in the state. We usually see each other outside of the state at Ag Chat events. Um, But Brian does a great job at The Farmer's Life, and that is his handle across all social channels, and it's also his blog name. He does a great job of sharing what's happening in the field today as far as technology, whether it would be GMO, uh, whether it would be drones. He actually shoots videos of him flying his drone over his neighbor while his neighbor's mowing his yard, and Brian likes to buzz him. It's really funny. (laughs) So so I – I enjoy that because I think he offers a really practical perspective. Um, another farmer that I enjoy because she's a dietitian and because she has a tendency to be conveying things effectively for consumers is Jennifer Schmidt. And her blog is Foodie Farmer. Um, she does some really interesting work as far as talking. Actually, her last one was on allergens and GMOs and the fact that they're not related. So I thought that was very intriguing. Um, as far as nutrition information, I always go to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. If you're not familiar, they are what used to be the American Dietetic Association. And I always go straight there as well as the dietary guidelines whenever I'm looking for nutrition information. Um, and my counsel to folks is always to find a registered dietitian who should be making scientifically-based recommendations uh, per the academy standards. That doesn't always happen these days, but they are supposed to be making scientifically based. And then a, a couple of other ones. Um, Marie Bowers out in Oregon, because Oregon has faced their own issues out there, does a really nice job at Oregon Green, and the URL is oregongreenblog.com. Uh, she's also on Twitter and, and so forth. So those are probably... The handful of a few you know I hesitate to name people by name because of the fact that there's so many but I would invite you all to go onto my website which is causematters.com I keep a list of scientific blogs so if you have a scientific blog that you would like to have added and it's related to food and agriculture or science communications or finding evidence-based science I would be delighted to add you to the list so please just email me um, and then my, I have a much larger list of farmers and ranchers across the world that blog there, as well as a list of advocate blogs. And those last two are all sorted by regions, So you can sort out depending on what area of the country you're in and check them out.
3: Wow, this is like a pinata. Uh, <laughs> I, I uh, hit it just a right. Uh, <laughs> um, so th- what's really cool about this is that it, you do provide a very good glimpse and a cross section of a lot of um, the same resources I like. Um, a lot of the same people who um, I'm interested in what they do. Um, you know, Brian. I actually drove through your town to get to brian's Town one time um, uh, up in Indiana. So well, um,
2: stopping by to say hi.
3: I know I should have. I didn't. I didn't realize at the time. Um, <laughs> those are really good hints as to where people could start to identify new sources of information to help them become uh, better, as you say, advocates and. Um, Also more well-versed in the agricultural side of different technologies and even just the basics of how it's done, and I think that's really great.
2: It's really interesting for us to watch what's happening in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. Um, We all have a tendency to get a little entrenched in our own world, and it's useful to gain perspective on what's happening. You know, for example, where I live in Indiana, water is not a big deal, but I've also lived in California, and I know personally how big of a deal it is out there. Likewise, if you look at what's happening in Oregon, and I mentioned that Marie... um, You know, a lot of things are happening in Oregon that, quite frankly, could be trend-setting for the rest of the country and are a bit scary. So that's why I put together that compilation of blogs on my website is because of the fact that I think it's really useful for all of us to learn from each other.
3: Do you have any, uh, where where else can people find you other than, so causematters.com that you mentioned, but what about on Twitter or Instagram, other social media?
2: Um, I am across almost every social media cha- channel with the exception of Snapchat, and all of my handles are at Canoper. so it's M-P as in Paul, A-Y-N-K-N-O-P-E-R, um, and so you can look for me on Twitter, on Instagram, my Facebook page is my full name plus cause matters. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn and Pinterest and Plus and probably a couple of others that I don't even remember. <laughs> so I, I love to connect with people. And if you're a scientist listening, uh, first, thanks for what you do because you probably don't get told that enough. But secondly, I'd love to connect with you. Um, I think we have a fascinating story to tell. And I'd love to help as many people um, in the agri-food sciences tell that as possible.
3: Well, thank you very much. That's Michelle payne Kenoper, who's a, uh, a professional speaker for agriculture and science, also author of uh, the book no More, no More Food Fights and also the upcoming, um, the upcoming book. What's the name of the new one coming up again?
2: Uh, it is Food Truths from Farm to Table, 25 Surprising Ways to Shop and Eat Without Guilt.
3: Oh, I can't wait. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I bet
3: you can. <laughs> but isn't it funny how every book that ever comes out is all of the dangers and all of the bad stuff and all of the... And it's. I started to think about this. And how would it be to live where you're afraid of the the healthiest, safest food supply in the history of the planet? And to live in constant fear and suspicion that you're being systemat- uh, systematically poisoned, um, it, it just would be such a grim existence. And so I really hope your, your book um, really helps people feel more comfortable with their eating. Uh, think about uh, the good things that we have to celebrate, the, the wonderful things that agriculture gives us. And uh, maybe that'll just turn this around for us.
2: Well, funny thing that you should say that, Kevin, is the last line in the book is actually enjoy food as a celebration because we do live in a time where people fear their food and it saddens me when I sit around with other moms and other folks that are out there buying food it really saddens me that they believe that they need to fear what they're buying and they feel bad because they're not doing they don't think they're doing the right thing for their kids. And that's really unfortunate because as you have already noted, we have an incredibly safe food supply and we are doing things and using technology in a way that has never been done before. But I think what we have not done is talk about it. So as I have been finishing up probably what will be around 80,000 words for this book, I actually wrote the conclusion pretty early um, because the fact that that was the most joyous part of the book to write, because I, I truly believe that we need to focus on food as sustenance uh, food is an opportunity to celebrate with those that you love, and food should be appreciated, not feared. So please stop feeling guilty about it. Um, so I'm right there on the same page with you. We definitely have to enjoy food as a celebration.
3: Thank you very much, Michelle. I really appreciate all you do. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Kevin. And that's Michelle payne um uh, calling today from Indiana about her thoughts on social media and her favorite websites. What are a few of her favorite things when she's looking for information to further her education in this area? And uh, Michelle's a favorite of mine. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you once again for your thoughts and comments. It's been a wonderful couple of weeks to read about what you think about everything in agriculture and food. Well, I'm Kevin Folter, This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week.